welcome once again to Radio Brews News, the podcast for the nocturnal migration. I'm Matt Kierkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News and host of the Good Beer Lunches. I'm joined, as always, from Melbourne by my good friend Pete Mitchum, proprietor of Beer Blokes, and he's also editor-in-chief of the book Critics' Choice, Australia's Best Beers. Pete, welcome back. Thanks very much, Matt. G'day, listeners. And uh, I think there might be a few more of them since last I said, welcome back, listeners. Right, there certainly are. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's hard to tell this. Um, we, we can tell our daily visits to the to the website, but the traffic um, seems to be going up. Uh, the, the number of downloads of the the blog. So yeah, so it's certainly. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a respectable number. Um, it, it's hard to say, but it's in the hundreds, um, which is good. So yeah, words getting around that um, we're not that rubbish. <laughs> we, we, we don't quite suck. Um, hopefully, well, at least some people think so. Um, and uh, hopefully that they're coming back. More importantly, uh, is it just what was the what was the the nocturnal migration? I like that. What was the? Oh, um, but you, you've seen the, the the latest Tui's campaign with the deers running it, around. This is the one with the, the roaming the roaming stags. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's your what's your take on that? Oh, I, I mean, look, I, we we know that okay, okay, um, I, Radio British News and through Australian British News, we have discussed at length in the past that. You've got to kind of suspend belief up to a point when you when you're watching beer ads and, and they're not meant to be sort of taken too literally or too seriously. But okay, go on. Bear in mind that I'm worried that I'm spending more of my time being cranky about beer than celebrating it. But you have asked me a question. Uh, look, you look at that ad, and if it was young men, eighteen to twenty-five, who are the target group for twoies, racing around doing exactly what the deers are doing. There would be a huge outcry, um, and you know, you know, again, it, it, you can't help but sound like a kill, killjoy. But a lot of that stuff seems to also be celebrating and you know, glorifying the behaviour that really has got all of the anti-alcohol campaigners up in arms, um, and it, it's a sort of very vis- visible street behaviour that upsets people, um, and is often linked to the worst aspects of beer. Um, now, you know, look, those sorts of things aren't of themselves bad. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you celebrate them, it can do your cause more harm than good. And some a line that I just keep finding myself saying over and over again is, at a time when beer is declining, shouldn't we be working very hard to improve beer's image rather than pandering to the lowest in an attempt to boost sales for the next quarter's annual general meeting? Um, you know, pandering to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, I have to say that I'm not really uh, surprised that when you're walking the streets, um, you know, the, the suburban streets in a restaurant district or a nightclub district or a um, pub district, the next morning it is twoies clear bottles that are lining the gutters. Um, and when you see ads like that, they're actually saying go to it. Anyway, soapbox, mate. Look, I didn't mean to get on the soapbox, nah. but, you know, I, I really nah, think that that know. sort of thing is really destructive for beer as a category. It might be good for their brand and it might give them a little bit of a bump that they can take to you know, the, the, the shareholders next quarter. But I, I, I honestly think that it, it's that sort of marketing that is contributing to the decline of beer overall. Um, and so they're shooting themselves in the foot. But anyway, look, as I said, soapbox off. Um, mate, how you been? Yeah. How you been? Uh, very well. Uh, busy again. I know I, I often say that. But um, yeah, it, it, it's been a... It's certainly been an interesting week. Uh, I've done a lot of writing and I've done a lot of reading and a lot of research online. And uh, What are you writing, Pete? Are you contributing to another book by any chance? Uh, well, there could be another book in the offing that's about to uh, 
where yes yes the the, the 2000 and well it's uh, to be released in 2012 but the 2011 version of the critics choice australia's best beers we're just at the moment in the process of putting together from a very long list of people who begged to be on the uh on the one of the critics um we're putting that down, trying to get that back down to the, the to the forty that we need. So we'll have you know ten ten or so brewers, ten uh, retailers, uh, venue operators, and then ten beer writers, stroke social media commentators, and whatever whatever have you. So that'll that'll be coming out. Uh, I think we're aiming for April again next year. Uh, uh, so the the voting will be will be uh, beginning soon. Now, uh, in in other news, um, tonight um, we're recording this on Thursday, the seventeenth of November. Um, the uh, beer war screening in Hobart yeah. is tonight. Big night in Tassie tonight. Big night yeah. in Tassie, and in other big beer wars news, unfortunately, neither of you or I could be there. And um, you know, as part of the the, the hamster, the hamster on the wheel will only take us so far. Well, as as part of the um, the uh, more professional podcasting, uh, you know, most people uh, sort of have a little bit of a closing uh, comment about you know. Radio Brews News is a production of Cuneiform Proprietary Limited. Um, so uh, our... our um, brought to you by the letter L. Yeah. Um, ours is, for want of a better description, Australian Brews News and Radio Brews News are independent not-for-profit ventures that aim to share the love, knowledge and respect for good beer through robust discussion. That The not-for-profit part isn't intentional and we hope to change that one day, but we'll never change the independence. <laughs> um, <laughs> bringing in that uh, not-for-profit bit, uh, you know, we're, we're not making a profit. Um, we're barely covering costs, but um, in, in keeping up with that, we couldn't unfortunately afford to get down to Tasmania for this. But um, we will be uh, at Newcastle um, next week um, for the Beer Wars screening there. And I've also just had to had crisis today because on the 29th of November in Brisbane, uh, we'd scheduled Ben to come up and present Beer Wars. We'd uh, taken it to a venue, a new venue um, that's opened up called Bittersweet um, down in New Farm. Nice little venue, could seat 40. We thought 40 was a good number. Brisbane's not a, you know, beer, uh, cosmopolitan beer uh, city. Yet. Yet. We thought 40 would be coming. Um, I put the tickets on sale, it must have been last Friday. Um, They went online. Sold out. Completely sold out. Um, to sell out 12 days in advance, you know, I shudder to think how many we might be able to get along, so I've had to do some frantic uh, reorganising. And, uh, yeah, we found a new venue that we can accommodate, you know, um, at least twice that many and probably more. Um, so we've had to shift it, and uh, emails will be going out very shortly to, to tell people and hopefully all of the people that came. They're, they're, they're regulars of my Good Beer Lunch hump day events anyway, um, so we normally hold it at this other venue. Um, so, yeah, but... How's that for a great result for craft nice beer? Nice work. That's, that's excellent. And look, I'm pretty sure that they're not all coming for my uh, sparkling personality. I think Ben Krause um, and his beers probably have a little bit to do with it. Um, he can draw a crowd. <laughs> yeah, he can. Yeah, so that, that, that's very exciting, nice. our development for craft beer in Brisbane. Onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards, Brisbane. Um, you know, we'll uh, we'll uh, get some palm trees in, and, uh, you know, <laughs> oases in that beer desert yet. That's it. Now, Pete, who have you, uh, as the um, executive producer of uh, Radio Brews News, <laughs> which I suddenly realised I didn't credit in my intro. Um, yeah, good on you. <laughs> well, man, <laughs> too many fingers in too many pies, we can't. Yeah. But as executive producer of, uh, of Radio Brews News, 
who have you lined up for us? Uh, it is my it is my job to t to tee up the talent, uh, and today we're going to chat to um, a guy who in Melbourne is fairly uh, well known, and also probably in Western Australia as well. He's one of the co-founders of Feral Brewing Company with Brendan Varis. Um, six years ago or so, he moved over to Melbourne, uh, and two years ago, I think August 2009, he uh, took over the lease of the Great Northern Hotel here in Carlton, which is an inner suburb of Melbourne. We're speaking to him today. And it, it should be very interesting because it's, um, we, we'd originally, and Al was a little bit busy, we, we tried to get him uh, a few episodes back to get his point of view on on tap contracts because he has sort of gone the other way and, and, and you know spurned the riches that have uh, been uh, offered to be showered upon him and gone the no contract uh, fully independent uh, route, and be interesting to t chat to him. Well, I think we'll probably bring it up, but um, you know, that's that. It's obviously what a lot, of the, not the way that a lot of people go. But he's he's done it and done it successfully. So it'll be interesting to see how he's done that and how it's going for him. I'm really looking forward to speaking to him because, as you say, he's a. Uh... He still serves up uh, a lot of mainstream beers. He hasn't gone the full let's go full on beer geek um, route, but it, he's really carving out a niche as a successful, viable bar in uh, Melbourne's inner north serving craft beer. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not about forcing craft beer down people's throat and saying, no, you know, what you normally drink is crap. If they, if, if they want to drink hey, mate, a certain mate, beer... Mate, mate, mate. <laughs> How about we chat to Al about this? Let's do that. We're doing a very good job of not needing him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and listeners, um, hold on after the break because we're going to be doing a pre-recorded interview that we recorded earlier with the Yeasty Boys. So how's that for a teaser? I'm getting very professional. But now, let's talk to Al. And yes, and now we're joined by Alistair Carraher, who is a one of the original uh, owners of Feral Brewery and he also the owner of the Great Northern Hotel, a temple to craft beer in Inner North uh, Melbourne. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Bruce News. No, thank you, Pete. Mate, just tell us a little bit about, I was interested, uh, I knew about the Great Northern, but I didn't realise that you were in, involved in getting... Uh, the Feral Brewery feral, up and running? Yeah, Feral up and running. Yeah, no, Feral was, was my, my baby uh, years ago. I was sitting on a beach I think in, in 98 in Rio de Janeiro trying to work out what I was good at, sort of, and... Uh, I'd seen a lot of uh, craft breweries through the state, so I just sort of came back with, with a mission that I wanted to start my own brewery, and pretty much everyone laughed at me, and the, the one that didn't, uh, the half-owner, is the current master brewer, Brendan Varis. So we set that up, took us uh, 98, we came up with a concept, and then we managed to get that open in 2002. I stayed with the, the brewery for a couple of years, and the harsh realities of family business, uh, I sort of bailed on that, and... I went to Malta and uh, unsuccessful there, and I've you now been in Melbourne six years with the, the Great Northern for the last two years. Let, let, let me get this right: you're sitting on a beach, yeah, wondering a... what you're <laughs> wondering what you're good at, and you thought beer. Yeah, that, definitely. That was that was the one thing I was pretty good at at that time. I travelled a fair bit of the world and drunk a lot of good beers and actively sought it. Used to seek out breweries, and I was sitting there with this guy that used to work one hour a day buying and selling helicopters and. Uh, just drinking on the beach, and yeah, he sort of got me motivated and just came back with... <laughs> a guy that sits on the beach selling helicopters got you motivated? Yeah, no, definitely. No, he, just, he opened his office from uh, 9 till 10 on uh, every day, and then the rest of the day he was drinking Jack Daniels and Coke on the beach. So it was a, a friend <laughs> of a friend. 
Excellent. So you, you ended up in Melbourne. Um, and how long have you had the Great Northern? Uh, I've had it for just over two years. I worked here when I originally was a bartender when I originally came over six years ago and worked here for about a year and then sold it when they sold it to Cornerstone. Uh, sorry, what, what was... They, they sold it to Cornerstone? Cornerstone were a big group from New South Wales that came down here and bought up about 27 properties and they all pretty much went bankrupt. Oh, okay. And ended up buying this back off the administrators about two, uh, in August '09. And now it's fair to say that the Great Northern was um, a, a fairly typical pub of the time in terms of um, you know, the big red horse out the front uh, on the sign, uh, very much a sort of uh, nylon carpet, no frills, lots of um, taps all offering a very similar sort of uh, fare. And it's also fair to say that um, it's very different now. Uh, definitely. Yeah, no, when we took over, there was... Uh... 12 taps in there, sort of, uh, and four out the back, and the, out of the 12 in the front, eight were the same, basically, and they're were, they were all Carlton United or, or uh, Coopers. We're, we're now at a stage where we've put an extra three, uh, four taps in, including two hand pumps, and we've now got uh, two Carlton beers, uh, just Carlton Draft and Left Blonde, and Coopers Pale only. The rest are all, all small independent craft breweries from around Australia or, or quality imports uh, that are brewed in the country of origin. We don't serve any uh, brewed under licence beers at all. All, all the, real, the real gear? Yeah, the real deal, yeah. So we've stopped, for example, we've stopped doing Peroni since Coke switched on their brewery. Yep. And so it's very similar to the model that the guys at the Tap House uh, followed initially where they sort of took over an existing pub and sort of softy, softy, catchy monkey. So rather than sort of closing down overnight and then opening the next day as, sorry, your old haunt is gone, here's the what we're replacing it with, did you do a similar sort of thing in terms of easing them into it and, and oh, renovating it over yeah. time? Yeah. Yep, definitely. It's taken two years to get the list where I'm happy with it, but sort of, and there were some big calls to get rid of Fat Yak and a few of those others. We, we gradually killed the brand by putting it out in the back bar or making it, making it harder and sort of promoting these other, other beers till it justified to take it off. But it was, it was over time and it was, it's been a slow process and it's, it's been lucky enough there's some great Australian craft breweries out there. We've been able to get people onto them so it justifies them staying on. And did you find that the, the locals embraced the change and sort of grew with it, or did you, over time, kind of replace one lot of locals or regulars with the with, with the no, new lot? No, definitely still got the same locals, and uh, some of the same locals are still drinking Carlton Draft, and we'll, we'll always serve that to, to keep them because we are a suburban suburban pub. But uh, we also have some locals. We have one that's been drinking Carlton Draft for 20 years. He switched over to Coopers, and now he's on Thunder Road, and. That was someone that literally hadn't had another beer outside Count Draft in 20 years. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely changing. Yeah, and it's certainly it's a great example of, of what can be done. How do you, how, to what degree do you uh, credit, I guess, the, the inner city Melbourne kind of feel? Uh, because I, I can guarantee you couldn't, you, you, your magic wand, your Midas touch, you couldn't bring that out to a, you know, a little suburban uh, ex-pokey venue or a little pub you know, out in the eastern suburbs, for example, and do the same thing, I, I don't think. To what no, extent do you, do you think the, the, you know, the, the city and the two surrounding suburbs is kind of the epicentre and, and oh, it just seems to be more willing to, to, to try something new? 
Oh, definitely. And as soon as you go a couple of kilometres out, the demographics change quite considerably and sort of we're still just in that catchment area and it's sort of quite an exciting area. So we've got Fitzroy just next to us. We've got Brunswick, which has got done the road and, and Temple Brewing opening shortly, sort of within a couple of hundred metres from us. So we're sort of, we're lucky in that sense that the people are very open that come through and we've found our biggest change is we've become a destination place now where people sort of come because they know they can get sort of different and good beers. And Wednesday nights are certainly uh, interesting to say the least with uh, Tommy Delmont and his uh, the Funky Bunch trivia. Yeah, and no, Tommy Tommy's amazing. He's got a cult following there now. We, we, we get up to a hundred people for trivia on a Wednesday yeah. night. So, and it's uh, the nights he's on uh, that everyone's drinking good beer. He really gets people into a, all all the beers, the goats included. But he'll, he'll push other beers as well when they're when they're drinking well. Matt, was it hard to make the the, the, the change? I know you've been doing it gradually, but I was down at the Great Northern for the first time probably about 18 months ago. Uh, Crafty Pint, Mr. Crafty Pint brought me in for yep. a uh, for a Crafty Pint and uh, introduced me to it. And uh, at that stage, you still had the, I think it was the Carlton Draft livery, um, yeah, well and truly painted around the hotel. Um, you There'd obviously been associations in the past. Has it been hard to get the business away from uh, you know, being very close to one brewery and having a, a broader base of um, craft beer support who, as we know, don't generally have the resources to, uh, to offer rebates and uh, um, some of the things that the, that the larger brewers can? Yeah, no, definitely. But I, I think that's one of the good opportunities you have by not taking these sort of contracts is you, you have that point of difference. And I think that outweighs, especially my situation where I am so passionate sort of thing. I was always going to do that. I was just lucky enough the market was, was there. But do you, th- do you think if every pub, and one of the things that I worry about is, you know, there, there seems to be a view that, you know, craft beer is fantastic. Anyone listening to this show um, is or, or, already a convert. And, you know, when you're a convert, you can't work out why everyone else doesn't agree. Um, do you think that, say, if, if you know, every pub within a, you know, kilometre radius of, of where you are at the moment suddenly threw off the shackles of, uh, CUB or Forex and started putting in uh, you know, craft beer that they would all be around in 12 months' time? No, definitely not sort of thing. And I, I think there, there, there is a, a place for it sort of and the, the hard thing is, is there's so much on the market it's actually getting the good ones and getting a well-balanced sort of list and sort of and that, that takes time sort of and that Carlton's still the, the, the biggest beer we sell out of the pubs so we're a specialist beer venue so you go to other venues sort of that uh, no, I don't think it would work, but sort of in the right niche, I think there's there's plenty of growth. It's, uh, the beer market, the premium end seems to be growing from strength to strength in Melbourne at the moment. How, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, Carlton Draft outsells any other beer in, in, in the venue. By what percentage do you reckon? Um, nowhere near as much as it was. It was probably 80, 80% of our sales two years yep. ago. It's, it's now probably 20%, if that, 15%. Okay. It's uh, a lot of the smaller beers. The Hargraves will do four kegs a week of. Stone and Wood, we do three kegs a week of. Sort of the Moo Brew, when we got it on, that doesn't last long. Sort of, we get that by the pallet. Sort of the Two Brothers, we do five or six kegs a week. So sort of, the, they've all got a bit of consistency now and a following. And how much of that do you think is because you started with it? You, know, you, you were in an area that people were probably... Uh, already uh, you know, receptive to craft beer and how many of those do you think you've uh, converted to craft beer? 
Uh, I think we've converted uh, quite a few, sort of uh, just just with our, our locals, quite a few of them now drink other beers and and come there just just for those beers. Uh, on on the general, more general sense, probably sort of there's, there's a certain person that's always going to like what they like, and we 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 don't try and change them, but we we educate our staff to try and educate people about what what we have got to offer. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about educating your staff. What would be your top tips to any venue that was looking at getting into craft beer? Um, and I'm putting you on the spot here, I know. But um, do, you, do you have any tips for a venue that likes the idea of getting into craft beer um, and how to go about doing it? Definitely spend the time and actually go out to all these breweries, talk to the to the brewers, talk to the the to everyone involved, taste the product, and work out what you want. Because it's very easy just to fill your taps up, but there's still uh, there's a, a lot of beers out there and there's, there's a big difference between the ones that, that they've got legs that haven't in my opinion. Yeah, I was just going to say um, having been to um, the Great Northern on a few occasions, the one thing you do notice and, and it can't be underestimated is the value of uh, not beer nerd staff but knowledgeable staff um, who can uh, you know offer a suggestion and, and then back it up with and this is why you know or, or can ask you a question about what you want um, the staff there certainly uh, they don't have to sort of refer to notes. No, definitely. I think the key is they're generally passionate about it, and I look for that in people. And if they're not, I'll train them up. If they're, if they're not into beer by the time they finish with me, they, they normally are. Yeah. Um, patience. Where does patience come in? Obviously, uh, you've not just sort of closed the doors, as Pete said, and shut it up and then come back the next day with a monumental craft beer offering. Does it take time to create a good beer venue? Oh, definitely. I, I think it's been uh, probably... May this year was when we started getting it about right, where we were pretty happy with it, but it, it took us nearly two years to get, get it to that point. We're gradually sort of changing beers, finding the ones we're happy with and sort of getting a good balance of uh, beers, specialty beers and beers that we rotate through. As somebody likes who likes craft beer themselves and obviously wants to uh, support it, was it hard to be patient? Like, did, did, did Was it hard to wait for your market to sort of grow to the point that you could more and more beers on because it sounds like you love beer there are so many beers out there was it hard to sort of resist putting an additional beer on that you wanted to see on the taps oh definitely and i had that problem with beer week where i had about nine in the hold sort of thing where it's sort of in the cool room waiting to go on to tap space uh, so it's, it's, it's probably getting a bit excited there and it took me a good couple of months to sort of slowly get them all through the, the system but a lot of them were big beers so they, they got actually got better you talked uh, about um balance as well um Balance is one of those things that... Oh, definitely. We, we try and cover all the styles. So we only have... We have two pails for the style Coopers and then Moobrew at the moment sort of thing. But we try and always have a wheat beer on. We try and sort of cover a, a broad spectrum of the styles and we swing a little bit more darker in winter and a little bit more lighter in summer. But then we try and keep our, our 14 or 15 consistent ones so we don't change at all. Without um, sort of divulging any commercial confidentiality and, and that sort of thing uh, have you had the the sales reps or the uh you know the, the the big brewery sort of come along and, and throw offers of cash at you to to take on that contract and and if so because because obviously a lot of people find that irresistible they say yep you know what i've got a rundown place or i've really wanted to utilize a beer garden um but it's it's dingy and cobwebby and whatever you know what 20,000, 30,000 upfront rebate, whatever it might be, gee, that's that, that's hard to look past. How how do you sort of, has, yeah. that, has that happened and, and, and how did you resist it? 
Yeah, not really, because I, I bought it off uh, administrators. So I've had, had obviously had Fosters in to talk about trying to get some more tap points, but sort of, it's where my passion is. So it's, the money doesn't sort of. I think it's more beneficial not to be tied up by that and have the flexibility, and that's probably the angle I've gone for. But don't your kegs cost more? Like, don't, don't you? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Sort of, but at the same time, I can switch a keg any time. I can take it off if I want to. I could put something new and interesting on, and and because of this, we've slowly become a destination place. So I, I don't. Yeah, the temptation didn't really get me. Uh, the the one other thing uh, that I'll talk to, and I've sort of been. While you've been talking to Pete, I've been sitting here mulling over whether I should. Um, when you mentioned balance, you also talked about quality. Um, you know, I, I, I've been on the verge of writing an article this week about what I call the elephant in the brewery. Um, and, you know, with all of this debate about what craft beer is um, in terms of the positives, there's also a lot of craft beer out there that either doesn't travel well or, um, you know, may not sit well. Um, unless it's refrigerated or just may not be very good to start with. Is uh, that a problem for craft beer? That's a massive problem. That's probably the biggest problem, I think, in the, the industry. You, you bring someone new that's sort of never tasted, and if they get one of these beers, why would they go back? They go back to what they know. And I, I think that's the biggest the biggest threat. We, we're very careful what beers we put into the venue that we select, sort of, and we try and sort of yeah, get ones that are good, consistent, and that, that, that we like. We'll, we'll have a tasting panel and sit down before any new beer goes into the, into either the bottle shop or the venue. There does seem to be a little bit of a feel um, in elements of the industry that the only reason that craft beer isn't on tap everywhere is because of contracts. Is that your read of it, or are there other issues that the industry needs to look at as well, such as demand, consumer demand, and also product quality? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the sort of all of them sort of thing that there are quite a few obviously contracted venues, but there's, there's a lot of people that aren't sort of that aren't doing the, the craft beer thing. They're just doing their own thing. Yeah. Do you, do you find uh, that the breweries, and I'm not saying that you've you've had examples of you know where perhaps the the quality hasn't been up to standard, but hypothetically, if there were, do you think the the, the small breweries are rely on, I guess, guys like yourselves, who, who they know are, 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 A, knowledgeable and, B, passionate, um, and, C, you know, probably honest, to give them a bit of feedback on, look, I don't know whether this is just a dud keg or uh, I don't know whether, you know... Yeah, no, my general experience is that we try and be straight up with them. Normally, Jeff will call them and tell them it didn't cut them. They, they, they generally try and argue, say, how good it is. So I think the sort of blinkers are on in a few cases, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's... We, we spoke to... Um, to, uh, to Brendan on the last episode of Radio Bridge News, or a recent episode of Radio Bridge News, and yeah, his concern too. I mean, excise obviously from a brewer's point of view is, I guess it's the it's the easy uh, easy target, and and a lot of people think that that would remove a lot of the issues around craft beer or good beer. But yeah, certainly in my opinion, and Brendan echoed this. Uh, keeping that consistency of, of quality is probably as important. And that's probably, I guess, an advantage that the, the bigger breweries have when they're doing a lot more volume they can afford to, I guess, or it's easier for them to, to hit all the marks, whereas um, it's probably a bigger issue, at, like I say, particularly from the consumer's point of view. They, they can brand all of craft beer as not very good based on you know a couple of bad experiences, and, and it's easy for them to sort of slip back to more commercial or mainstream uh, wise. Yep, no, definitely. 
Now, you, you mentioned Craft Beer Week or Good Beer Week um, this year. We've seen we've seen a little bit uh, announced about 2012. Have you got your program, any ideas about what you're doing? Any surprises that you want to announce first on uh, Radio Brews News? Yeah, and I think we're looking at sort of uh, doing all, all, all Western Australian lineup for the, the week yet. So I haven't talked to any of the foe back there, but uh, we'll be talking in the coming weeks. But we're looking at that concept at this stage. So we'll, we'll have uh, 20 taps of, of uh, Western Australian beers and try and search out some of the ones that aren't normally over on the East Coast. Because at the moment, Al, you're sort of relying on that, you know, the the, the feral connection, and and you've got is it two still two permanent feral taps? I think you're the only one sort of out this this far east of the brewery that um, that has any permanent feral taps, let alone two. Yeah, no, it's starting to become more available over here now in Melbourne. They have cold storage now, so that they're transporting it over. But we, we continually see run the, the hop hog, and uh, at the moment we've got a. Uh, Keg of the the Razorback, the barley wine, but we we tend to switch that over in between different ones. Yeah, I'd imagine the um the white will probably be getting a run now that the uh, 28 degrees and beautiful and sunny in Melbourne today. Be a, a yeah, it's the first one, of them, though. <laughs> <laughs> we, we haven't had much we haven't had much good weather down here. <laughs> we, we're still waiting to open the back beer garden. We just need the sunshine. So, so El, if there are there are you know literally tens of listeners to Radio Brews News. There are probably some out there who are, you know, I don't know, sitting there with masses of cash burning holes in their pocket thinking, I'd love to open a craft beer venue. What, what advice would you give them? Uh, How would do you your research. Out? Yeah, do your research and sort of uh, there's opportunity. You've got to pick the, pick the right niche, the area, and, and go with your concept. Just go with it. Do it, do it right. But the, the research is probably the, the biggest bit of advice I could give. Now, I reckon a little bit of funky marketing doesn't go astray either. And I know uh, probably the first I heard of the Great Northern Hotel uh, was via a story about uh, the pure blonde that was on tap. And with every pot poured, uh, the punter was given a, a jelly bean. And the, the, you know, the perplexed drinker would say, well, what's this for? And the staff would explain, well, that's about the difference in the carbs between drinking this beer and a... Uh, you know, so for example, this this nice one in the tap next to it that's a full strength craft beer. Yeah, no, definitely. We had a lot of fun with that promotion. We even hit Foster's up for the jelly beans that they weren't too happy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we used to get train the staff to give them in a coffee a coffee saucer with one jelly bean in it, and just explain yeah, it's half a jelly bean the difference between that and a a, a real non carb beer. So I know we do like to have a bit of fun with those sort of things. That's generally sort of about as much marketing as we do. Okay, mate. Well, look, Alistair, thanks very much for, for joining us on Radio Brews News. Can't wait to get down to uh, Good Beer Week uh, 2012. Uh, listeners, and Pete, there are more than uh, tens, uh, judging by the traffic we're getting. So, uh, listeners, jump onto Virgin, jump onto Jetstar, jump onto Qantas if they're flying. Book your ticket uh, now. And we, we might even put a link to Craft Beer Week and uh, certainly to the Good Great Northern week. Hotel. Yeah. Uh, Good Beer Week. Sorry, I've got to... I've, <laughs> That was the, one of the smartest naming uh, things. Uh, showed a lot of foresight calling it Good Beer Week. Um, that way yep. we don't have to fight about exactly what's what in and what's out. <laughs> it is what it is. That's right. No, definitely. That's awesome. Al, good on you. Thank you for joining us on Radio Brews News. And I look forward to having uh, a beer with you at the Great Northern very soon. Yeah, definitely. No, thanks for your time. Thanks, Al. Cheers. Well, that was Al Carraher. Pete, mate, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. A, a lot of points sort of covered off and it was yeah look hopefully that is a bit of an inspiration to other venue operators who are either you know perhaps coming to the end of a contract or have a, a clause in the contract where they can perhaps not necessarily turn over 
you know, completely, but, uh, you know, to, to one particular style of beer or another. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully some, some inspiration there. And, you know, oh, should I'll probably get myself into trouble here, but, you know, it shows to me that the guys that think the only reason that craft beer isn't everywhere is because of big brewery contracts... Yeah, they're just wrong. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, mm. they're, they're, yep. they're, you know, you've got a venue that's putting on good beer. He's taking his market with him, but his biggest selling beer is still Carlton Draft. Carlton Draft. Yep. Now he's he's had the balls to actually go out there and rather than all of the other guys say, "Oh, we need to sign a contract because otherwise our Carlton Draft is, uh, you know, more expensive." He go, "Well, it's more expensive, but I can also take it off anytime I want." He's been very smart, but at the end of the day, with all of these other beers on offer, um, intelligent um, staff selling them Carlton yep. Draft is still his biggest seller um, you know we didn't get a chance to, to speak to him about it uh, but also there's a link in there with the with the kitchen the kitchen does look good honest um, pub fare but there are a few dishes that have uh, you know seasonal beers incorporated in the you know like it, whether it's the beer better fish and chips or the, um, the the mountain goat shorefoot stout and wagyu beef pie those you know yep. so there's that little link in there as well which also Again, is a, is another stream of revenue. If you take the, you know, just people can come there just for the food, um, yep. but it but it exposes them to to the other areas of the business as well. And uh, yeah, look, and and that's the thing. And you know, we all get passionate about contracts, but and this will probably really test to see if anyone listens to us, Prof. Um, depending on how much hate hello, mail hello, I get, but um, hello, you know, <laughs> craft beer <laughs> needs to get its house in order before it seriously starts complaining about contracts. Um, you know, craft beer quality, craft beer reliability, and craft beer availability are the reasons that I regularly hear from publicans about why craft beer isn't on tap in their places. Yeah. Um, or you know why small independent craft beer isn't on tap, and it's it's obviously not everybody, but there is enough of it about that a lot of craft brewers are wary. Yeah. Um, because it can, of, it can be a more expensive uh, risk, a business risk to to, to take on. And it's therefore got to be, you, you can't, the quality's got to back that up. And the distribution. The, the quality's got to back the, it up. The knowledge and, yeah. And, mate, there are some beers that probably shouldn't be sent right across Australia. Um, and, you know, I, I know that every time you get email from, or you, like you, you get a delivery from a lot of the small little guys, they send out a sheet saying, you know, treat this like milk. You know, it's, got to, you know, it's, it's, it's not pasteurised and all of those sorts of things. And that's, you know, spot on. But a lot of venues don't have a place to put it straight in the fridge, um, That's right. and you know they'll they'll leave it sitting out. And yes, it might be their fault. It might be their fault that it's spoiled when it gets on. But you know, hey, that's the industry. There is a lot of structural change that needs to take in the in, take in the industry before you know uh, everybody can treat beer perfectly. Exactly. And if if you're selling them the beer and they're not treating it right, then whose fault is that? Anyway, look, you know, mate, it's. That sounds That's like a whole, a whole other podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah a whole another <laughs> reason to get myself yeah, in, into trouble. But anyway. Because it, uh, we'll We've got the Easty Boys next. We're, we're, they're they're holding the light. They're, they're in the back room. And you're waiting. They're in the green room. <laughs> about thank you. Thank, thank you for dragging me down from that precipice, uh, That's right. Prof. Um, yes. Uh, look, we'll uh, have a chat to the Easty Boys, two fantastic guys from New Zealand who are brewing great beers um, that are available at hopefully a craft beer venue near you. Without any further ado, the Yeasty Boys. And yes, we're finally joined by the long-promised Yeasty Boys. Sam and Stu, welcome to Radio Brews News. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. 
men of very few words, although with the, uh, the delay that we've got, it's probably best that uh, we, we wait and see how we go. Um, now, as I uh, said to Prof at the uh, start of the show, um, I've spoken to you guys a fair bit, so I'm going to let Prof take the lead and uh, see where this little interview goes. So, Prof, over to you. Thanks very much, Matt. A little bit disappointed, I should add, there, that you've been uh, Radio Brews newsing behind my back. Now, executive producer does need to have some sort of control over these things or anarchy will reign. So just we'll leave it at that and we'll say no more about it. What do you mean? We've been talking to the boys and we're, we're here to interview them. Oh, no, I've been interviewed. Like, we did the tasting. We did the Yeasty Boys by Skype tasting and asked a lot of the questions I would be asking now, and I'm worried that I'll get it mixed up and I'll ask, I won't ask questions that people <laughs> want to know the answers to because I've already asked the questions, if you know I what I mean. I do know what you mean. No, that's fine. We'll say no more about it. Stu and Sam, thanks very much for joining us today. Let's start off for those who are familiar, perhaps, with the Yeasty Boys as a name and perhaps with some of your beers, but are perhaps not quite so uh, over the whole Yeasty Boys story. Where does where does it begin and, and where has it taken us? Oh, you can go well, back a, a long, long way, I think. Couldn't you, Sam? Yep, about 15 years now, I think. All back to um, our university days where, um, yeah, you, Stu and I went to the same university and I guess we discovered beer together. Um, and I guess when I say that, we kind of, at some stage, you know, went from drinking mass swill to something that was a little bit more um, exciting. And um, I guess through that, the beer um, that was our discovery was Emerson's Bookbinder. So people might be familiar with, with that beer, but certainly will be familiar with Emerson's. And um, so that was, I guess, when we were about 21, 22. And we found out that, you know, beer was, beer was this exciting thing that actually had flavour. And um, I guess over the course of the years, we both got an interest in trying and drinking different beers and many late nights over, over a few pints, talking about how we would love to open up our own brew pub or brewery or whatever it might be. And um, I guess, yeah, we're over the over the course of years, you know, Stu and I both got busy with, uh, I guess, with uh, our careers or having families or travelling. And um, about five years ago when um, I came back from, from London, um, Stu had this idea about a beer that he wanted to produce commercially. Um, and I guess it kind of linked to a lot of the dis- late night discussions we'd had over those many years. And I guess from that started started the concept of Yeasty Boys. And so over a few points of, uh, of Emerson's bookbinder, you sort of scratched out some figures on, a, on the back of a coaster and, uh, and came up with a business plan or uh, did you decide that um, buying your own stainless steel wasn't necessarily the way to go or that uh, it wasn't the way you wanted the the business model to look or how did it go from there to where you are now not quite as um advanced as any of that really it was um pretty much a a a case of um i had done a little bit of planning around the idea of a brew pub a little bit earlier uh but uh, my wife and i had um, a child and we sort of thought well we'll put that on the back burner because don't really want to do sort of 60 or 80 hour weeks at the moment uh when we're just sort of starting a family so um and that was around about when Sam came back from overseas. And uh, at that stage, I just thought, well, I'll continue along home brewing. And I was already heavily involved in the, the beer industry. I was actually sitting on the board of the New Zealand Brewers Guild at that stage as a home brewer who was um, just helping out a lot behind the scenes at running uh, Brewing Z and Beervana, which a lot of Australians will know about, I'm sure. And... Uh, one day I brewed a home brew, which was an accident actually, and uh, the beer was sort of so good and so different from from what 
anything I'd tried before that um, I decided to uh, ring up my mate Steve Nelly at Invercargill and say, can I make some beer with you? Sort of rung Sam about the same time and said, do you want to fly down to Invercargill and brew a beer? And we just sort of decided to make one single beer and we really didn't know what was going to happen from there. Um, just one batch of beer, basically because so many people had been asking me saying, you know, oh, oh I want to try that beer you made, you know, it was, it was so good, I want another bottle or, you know, all these people want home brew if you're making good home brew and uh, you get to the point where you sort of think, well, actually, it's not going to cut at me making a few 50 litre batches on my back deck, I should make a bit more and um, maybe people will buy it. And uh, so that was it. We made one batch of beer. Uh, originally, it was going to be 600 litres. I asked Steve how, what, you know, the littlest amount we could possibly make. And, um, you know, it was partly a trip down there to catch up with him and brew some beer on his system. I knew him really well already and uh, uh, decided, you know, send him a beer, get him to taste it. We'll talk about how to upscale the recipe and everything. And uh, when he tasted the beer, he rang me up and said, bloody hell mate there's no way i can brew 600 liters of this 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 is so good let's brew as much as we can so we brewed a full batch and uh, sort of yeah the rest is history it's sort of uh, we're still developing pretty much in that fashion we just kind of we make beer and if we like it we might make a little bit more of it uh we're pretty easy we don't have to you know adhere to any business plan or anything like that because of the fact that we're making you know pretty small volumes and just making them as we can uh, with the excess capacity at Steve's plant. So it's uh, it's kind of nice. It's a nice business model, uh, you know, with quotes around business model. Yeah. And you, you sort of refer to that, I guess, you know, contract brewing is, as we've discussed um, at length in the past, as sort of a something of a dirty word over this side of the ditch. Um, Toll brew, what's the difference between you've spoken about toll brewing um, as against the term contract brewing? Can you explain a bit about that? Sam, do you know that one? <laughs> toll brewing, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a new one for me. Oh, is I, it? Yeah, I think I've heard toll brewing. Am I right in saying that's where you um, basically go in and use someone else's space or something like that, as opposed to contract brewing where you sort of get them to do everything? Yeah, and and also yeah. I guess um, you're they're helping you out. You're helping them out. Um, yeah, yeah. It's I suppose it's a semantic thing, or, or maximising you know, city and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's very much a semantics thing, I suppose. In the end, for us, it's all about good beer, and kind of I don't mind sort of too much who's involved where or anything like that, as long as the beer's fantastic. Um, with us, of course, Invercargill's a long way away, if anyone knows New Zealand. Um, for Sam, it's uh, probably uh, two flights minimum. Actually, for both of us, it's two flights minimum to get there. For Sam, it would be pretty much the whole day to get there. For me, it would be a half a day. Um, so it's not conducive to be um, going down there and brewing every week, obviously. Um, so we went down for the first uh, three brews, I think it was three, Sam? Four? Yep. Three. And... Um, Got to know the system there with Steve, um, massively overdue for another trip. Actually, he's just been up to Wellington last week for um, a bit of catch-up. But we, um, So we're not doing the sort of hands-on going in and brewing every week, uh, which would be nice if he moved his brewery up here. Uh, but I'm not in any hurry to move to Invercargill, and I'm sure Sam's not either. And Steve's definitely not in any hurry to move out of Invercargill. He loves it down there. His family's there, and um, you know his brewery's um, become quite successful. So... Um, yeah, essentially, we'd be the dirty word contract brewers, I guess, as you'd call them over there. 
uh, as opposed to someone like uh, Eight Wired, who I suppose you may call Soren a toll brewer because he kind of he's there hands on doing the work every day. Um, you know, he's brewing for Renaissance and then in his spare time brewing uh, on the side for himself. Uh, and you get a couple of others like that. I'm not sure how Epic um, do theirs. They occasionally seem to be in the brewery there, but I don't think they're in for every brew. I'm not quite sure. Uh, up at Steam Brewing. But it's, yeah, contract brewing in New Zealand's becoming very popular. Um, there's another, there's a tiny little brewery, the Garage Project, who are sort of creating waves around Wellington at the moment. Uh, I noticed today they were just down at Three Boys Brewery, brewing a batch there. So same sort of thing as us, I guess. Probably a bit too far for them to go down and brew every time. So um, they'll get, get down there a couple of times, I'm sure, and get to know the brewery. Uh, and brew a bit of beer. They were running on a 50-litre plant at the moment, so that's a bit too small to make any money off it. Uh, so, And I know they've both uh, given up their day jobs for it, so um, I think they're looking at bringing in a bigger brewery at some stage into Wellington and setting that up at their site at the moment. Uh, so they'll have to just start off with a bit of contract brewing to, to get some money behind them, I guess. So, um, yeah, yeah, at this, at, on this side of the, um, the Tasman, I think not many people care if it's uh, contract brewed or, you know, slaved over by one guy who sort of does the actual brewing, does the accounts, you know, pays the wages to everyone, um, delivers it, hand delivers it or whatever. Um, mostly we're all about, you know, how good the beer is. I suppose we probably haven't had to face some of the dodgy tasting contract brews that uh, you guys possibly have in the past. And yeah, also, yeah, yeah. the other yeah, thing about... Was... Sorry, Stu. Oh, the other thing about New Zealand brewing, I think, uh, so far is we've we've really moved away from this sort of regional thing. There doesn't seem to be many breweries who are really pushing the, you know, we're a Hawke's Bay brewery or we're a Canterbury brewery or anything like that. There's a couple, um, but most of the people who are making sort of great beer are kind of branding their concept around something quite different, you know, whether it's the brewer themselves or, you know, eight wide with the ingenuity thing. Um, we've got a lot of sort of pop culture references in the beers that we make and their names. We're all kind of sort of having a bit more fun beyond, you know, trying to say it's a regional thing because really it's not that regional. We're, the malt's grown in a different place from where the hops are growing here. A lot of people are using imported malt as well or imported hops. Um, everyone's yeast is coming from the United States pretty much as far as I know, maybe a couple from England, from a yeast bank in England, I think. Um, so, you know, it's not quite like it is with wine. It's not quite as regional and sort of terroir based. Uh, it can be if you want, if you want to make sort of unique beers that are, are based around that. But uh, mostly it's just about having fun with flavour, I think. Yeah, and I guess aside from the, the obvious thing with contract brewing being, you know, people think, about, I guess, not having to put money into stainless steel and and using up capital in that way. Um, I mean, the other benefit for it, for us, in terms of using Steve down in Chicago, is I mean, essentially he's the third yeasty boy, um, and that we benefit, you know, not from his kind of skill in brewing and his own what he brings in terms of the beers that we look to develop. So, you know, we get a additional person in terms of helping us uh, coming up, come up with creations, and I guess not having to worry about running um, a physical brewery or being in there and doing the cleaning and all that other stuff that kind of goes with that, even though I'm sure it's a lot of fun from time to time as well. I guess it just leaves us to think about um, what we love to do, and that's um, kind of new beers and drinking them and um, kind of trying to get them out in terms of a, to the market. So, yeah, Boys, tell us about um, about the beers that you brew at the moment. So what, what, what's the range and what's the uh, what does the future hold for us? 
So I guess we've, we've um, from those early beginnings, and yeah, we produced just the one beer, and um, that kind of kept on going for the first 12 to 18 months. Um, but uh, we're three years in now, and yeah, we've kind of got ourselves a, a permanent range, um, which has just kind of happened this year. Uh, the, the number one on that is the Pot Kettle Black, so that was actually that first beer that she was talking about that we, we brewed. Um, and then we brewed again um, a year later because it was so popular. And on the back of that, we won it won the trophy for um, Stouts and Porter that year, and then also won the People's Choice at um, at the Beervana Festival, um, the first beer and still the only beer to win two trophies in, in one year. And I guess that gave us the confidence that um, that we could move from I guess these single batch brews that were mainly for um, pubs and bars through keg that we would actually bring out a a bottled beer. Um, and that brought its own kind of challenges. You have to think a little bit more about packaging there. Um, and I guess the, in terms of uh, how, you're, how you're distributing your product changes a little bit in terms of venues. So getting into bottle stores and supermarkets and in fridges at bars and cafes and restaurants. Uh, so that kind of all started started last year. Um, and you know, that went, I guess, really well for us. So it kind of gave us, again, more confidence and there was a, another beer that we kind of brewed off as a single, we brewed a single beer that came out one of the His Majesty series that again was really popular and we really liked. So we decided that we would we would kind of take that, the essence of what that beer was and change it up a little bit and bring that out as our second permanent beer, beer which was at the start of the year. And that's Hutter Wolf Strong. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of then had this, uh, the third the third beer, maybe the, the most uh, unexpected of the lot, which was Rick's Attitude. So. Um, that also kind of we've added to our, our permanent range. You know, not not intended to be the the, the biggest seller, though. Yeah, even that surprised us since we've released it. But um, you know, in terms of interest, and you know, we love it so much. You know, we didn't want to just do it as a one-off. We kind of want to see it as something we will we will brew all year round, at least for now. So yeah, we've kind of got three three beers in our permanent range at the moment. So you know, from where it was about 18 months ago, 24 months ago, it was just one-off batches. Now we've kind of we do have a range. Yeah, and to paraphrase the old uh, pop song from a few years back, let, let's talk about Rex. Um, you say that it's, you, you sort of flippantly almost say, oh, it's an interesting sort of beer. Now, the, the accepted wisdom in brewing circles is that if you're going to brew with, um, with a smoked peak malt, uh, no more than, say, 35, 30, 35% um, to brew a beer, uh, you guys sort of thought, well, let's, let's turn it up a little bit and use 100%. What, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, well, I think and the accepted, how hard, and, and how hard were your fingers crossed that it would actually work? The accepted wisdom is probably um, about five percent, actually. In fact, most people I talked to, most brewers, sort of said, you know, no way they'd use more than five. And one one brewer, uh, Colin Page from uh, Max, who used to be the head brewer for Max here in uh, Wellington, who's uh, given me a lot, lot of advice today as a home brewer over the years, uh, he said, no way, you know, I used ten percent once in a home brew, and it just uh, it was, you know, completely undrink to pour it out. Um, he would still agree with that. I know he's he's in Singapore now working for um, uh, Archipelago, Archipelago, I think it is, brewery. And he has tried it over there, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if he could get past himself. So I think accepted wisdom probably still is 5%. Um, but we uh, it, it sort of the idea came to me from I tried here uh, with about 90% or 95% peated malt in a home brew competition years ago. Uh, I was actually stewarding uh, for the, it was the first uh, New Zealand home brew championship run by Sober, the Society of Beer Advocates. 
and um, I thought the beer was fantastic. It didn't meddle, but it was by far the favourite one uh, that I tried of you know from stewarding. And uh, I actually emailed the guy afterwards, uh, John Gollux, his name is the guy who homebrewed it, and and he actually one of his beers was up for champion beer there. Um, I think it it didn't win actually. There was another beer that won the champion, but there were three that were retasted for the champion beer, and uh, he just missed out on that. That was a ten year old barley wine, I think. He's a fantastic brewer. Anyway, I emailed him and said, you know, great beer. I'm sort of sad that it didn't medal. If it been uh, if I'd been judging, I definitely would have pushed hard for it to medal, but it didn't. And uh, anyway, the beer kind of went out of my um, mind for a couple of years, I guess, and uh, completely forgot about it. And then one day, I think I was reading an article about single malt whiskey, and I was thinking about how how popular Isla whiskey is, and how it's really, um, you know, just in the last few years, all the whiskey geeks have been really into into Isla whiskey, and they're always talking it up, and you know, what's the peatiest, and blah blah blah. And uh, I was also thinking about how you know, uh, beer geeks are really into their hoppy beers, and who makes the hoppiest beer, and all this sort of thing. And uh, at the same time, it sort of occurred to me that there's a often like a real citrus nice citrus character that i get out of isla whiskies that it, you know could almost sort of come back towards the um you know ipa sort of style and i thought i wonder mm. if we could play around with that as a bit of an idea and uh, so i brewed a home brew batch uh, i just thought i got really excited about it and i was you know I was so excited that i couldn't wait for the malt to come i ended up brewing um, one with uh Roush malt first, because I had some Roush malt with me. I'd ordered a sack of um, heated malt, I hadn't arrived, so I brewed that one, and that was okay. But uh, as soon as the heated malt one came, I, you know, ripped open the sack the moment I got it and made a beer with it. And uh, while I was waiting for it to come, I sort of thought about it a bit more and more, and I thought, uh, I'm not going to go with the sort of IPA to start off with. I'm going to go with because it's going to be quite phenolic. I'll go with something a bit more phenolic. So I sort of based around yeah so I decided to go um, with something a bit more sort of phenolic you know as a base and so I sort of thought about a uh, Belgian uh, gold nail and uh, or blonde and you know about seven percent similar sort of characteristics about similar sort of bitterness and stuff like that and uh, so I brewed a beer along those lines around those stats um, but all with 100 percent peated malt a little bit of US oh sorry New Zealand Willamette and um I, I kegged it and then went to Aussie for holiday for three weeks and the whole time I was in Aussie you know I kept thinking about it and the last couple of days on my holiday I just couldn't stop thinking about it it was all I could think about you know I couldn't concentrate on packing bags or anything um, it was really because I'd tasted it when I'd kegged it and I thought it seemed like it had potential and sure enough you know I flew home got in about midnight put the kids to bed and ran downstairs into my cellar and tried a glass of it immediately and i tell you what it was like you know the biggest eureka moment i've ever had i just fell in love with it from that instant and uh, i'm sitting here with a glass of it now and i still love it i don't probably drink it as much as um i did when we first released it i was drinking it pretty much every day then but uh but i really love it it's my favorite beer and uh it's, it's so unique but to me it's so subtle you know i think when people if people can get past the um i you know the point where they don't actually hate it because a lot of people just hate it from the instant they smell it um you'll notice that there is there's actually you know an amazing amount of subtlety in there for a single malt single hop uh beer with a pretty 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 uh you know standard yeast there's nothing um too much going on with the yeast in there uh, it's got a lot of complexity and subtleness i really love it 
The hard it thing is when we, say, when we say it's subtle, you know, people look at us like we should be sent to the loony bin. <laughs> yeah, it's fair to say that it, it's a fairly polarising beer. I, I haven't had too many people uh, in tastings that I've done with it um, and, and, you know, where I've just bought somebody, look, just try this. It's very rare that people sort of say, mm, yeah, that's okay. It's, it's either love it or hate it. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, we've had some yeah, interesting we had... haters. <laughs> to me, well, to me that's that's part of on, the thing. On, that's that's part of the thing about um, you know why we're here to make beer, I guess, really. And and for us, it's much more important because we don't have to pay the bills or you know um, pay off the the mortgage on the stainless or anything like that. You know, we're here to make beer that people are you know going to feel really strongly about. And um, I'd like everyone to absolutely love it. You know, just like you want everyone to think your children are awesome. Uh, you want everyone to love every single beer you've made. Um, but most importantly, you know, you want to get some sort of reaction out of it. And uh, I guess sometimes that's going to be, meh, you know, uh, with some of the beers that we've made that have probably been, uh, you know, at the low end of the alcohol spectrum, you know, around 3.5%. A lot of people have sort of been, oh, meh about it. And uh, and other other times people are really, you know, into it. They're like, oh, wow, this is what we really need, more beers like this, 3.5%. And, you know, they're quite vocal about it. And it feels good, you know, to feel, to hear that sort of feedback when people are really, you know, really passionate about something, you know, whether it's a big, strong Rick's Attitude or, um, you know, a little 3.5% um, sort of English-style bitter or something like that. Um, that's what we're here for. We're not here to make a beer that's going to please everyone, that's for sure. We ask our uh, our listeners to, we, we, you know, send out a tweet um, and let people know that you know who we're going to be speaking to, and uh, do they have any questions for you? Now we had plenty for you guys. Um, only two of them, I think, were uh, not about pants, which we'll get to in just a moment. But uh, from uh, Dave Langlands the other Dave, who's uh, one half of the of a very good team down here in Melbourne at uh, the James Squire Brewhouse at, at the Portland Hotel. Uh, he says, uh, I read some bad reviews of Rex. I love it, by the way. Uh, what was the worst or the funniest that you've had? Just was about two or three weeks ago. We um, we got an, received an email. It's actually the second time we've received an email about uh, specific email about Rex, and neither of the two have been complimentary. But this one took the cake. It was recently a, a beer festival uh, called the Pacific Expo Festival down in Wellington, uh, run by the um, Hashigozaki Bar and uh, very successful and uh, there they had um, a beer that's about to be come come to Aussie probably in the next month or two a celebration of Rex attitude and the fact that we won the innovation award for it at this year's Brew NZ um, and we've made a I guess best to be called an imperial um, Rex um, X Rex it's going to be called um, so it's a 10% <laughs> version of uh, version of Rex and they had a bag there that they put through a um, kegged and put through a hand pump, I think, or was it just kegged? I can't remember now. Um, but they served at the the festival, and we got an email from someone who had attended, and pretty much went along the lines of, uh, you know, I was at the festival, I tried your your beer, um, and uh, and it was full of capitals, and went along something along the lines of, it was completely shite. I thought I couldn't finish it. Neither could my two friends finish it. Um, you know, we think you've been trying to poison us. So you need to pull this beer from your. Uh, from your range immediately, and uh, I'm un we're unlikely to ever drink your beer again. Signed, Ken. So, um, and Stu replied very well um, to that, and just kind of said, well, you know, we enjoy any feedback, but we can assure you that we weren't trying to poison you, and um, that uh, we hope you don't put it off the rest of our beers, and 
um, you know, you should uh, probably not be uh, not not be so uh, have so much extreme views on things. You know, trying to appreciate differences. But I don't think he quite got the got the point there. But yeah, it kind of made it made us really laugh. One, I guess that oh, quite chuffed. I guess that we probably he was went to such a it had such an impact on him that he wanted to email us us. But um, also, I guess just kind of says the polarization of that beer that it can have. Meanwhile, you know, Stu and I also received uh, plenty of compliments from people who tasted exactly the same beer festival and how much they loved it. So just goes to show. Yeah, I think, I think it was probably a little bit like um, like art, and and sometimes the artist, you know, wants to produce a piece not for somebody to necessarily like or to love, but just, just to move you, to give you, to to get draw some sort of emotion. So, and obviously Rex is pretty good at doing that. Yeah, and most importantly, you know, we love it. It's uh, it's a beer that we both drink a lot of. I'd probably it'd be the beer of ours that I drink the most of. Um, um, as anyone who knows us will know that we drink a hell of a lot of other people's beers. Um, that's kind of what we're into. We like trying trying different sort of beers. You won't see us sort of standing around the pub holding bottles of our own beer or anything like that. Um, and it's pretty rare for us also to, you know, be uh, handing out our beers or if we go out with someone, you know, to, to be buying our beers for them. We like to sort of try other people's beers and uh, that's what inspires us, lots of other brewers and things like that. So, um uh, with that guy who who made his comment, ended up having quite a nice little email discussion with him actually backwards and forwards. And um, you know, we, I'm not sure I've turned him around to drinking Rick's attitude, but um, but he may he may try some of our other releases in the future. Um, in regards to like the funniest one, or we've received some pretty funny ones actually. We've got a blog on Post Posterus. Um, if you look for Yeasty Boys Posterus, or you can link it through our website. Mm -hmm. But um, there's, I've written like a massive list of um, some of the funniest ones we got. Like when we first released it, um, I was getting heaps of hits on Twitter of people trying it, and uh, there was lots of sort of talk of tweed for some reason. Sort of, uh, and I know I know down at the Wheaty in Adelaide, there's a quite a lot of people there that like it, and I think um, there's quite a lot of tweed worn down there from now now and then. Uh, I know they do a tweed ride, a bicycle ride, with where they all dress up in sort of old tweedy suits and stuff like that. Um, so there's there might be a bit of a link there to it being good. Um, but yeah, so someone I think said it's like tonguing your granddad, and I guess her, she was imagining her granddad being in a tweed suit, perhaps. Um, I'm not quite sure, yeah, what that'd be like because I haven't tongued my granddad before. But um, one of the other classic ones was um, it smells like uh, that time I pissed on the fire to put it out. <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that was uh, a compliment, but uh, it was uh, it definitely struck a bit of a chord with me. Um, lots of funny ones, but um, yeah, probably best to go on there and have a look. Some people will probably find some funnier than others, and some people will find them probably um, a little bit crass now and then. Um, yeah, we'll we'll put a link we'll put a link to the uh, to the blog when we uh, when we when we post this interview. Yeah, so people, yeah. people can. Uh, there was a there was a, a guy um, from Australia as well who um, who uh, I've met uh, down at uh, Good Beer Week a couple of years ago. Had a couple of beers with him, um, excellent home brewer from down there in Melbourne, and uh, he said that it's he's got a really, really astute palate, I've noticed. I read a lot of his ratings on rate beer just to sort of see what he's drinking and stuff like that, and um, he's a funny, funny guy as well. He said it smelled like one of the security guards at his work, so <laughs> I'm not sure if that's uh, if he's a smoker or if it's perhaps the soap he's using or something like that, but um, hopefully uh, that, that security guard won't find out about that. Yeah. Now we, we, you, spoke a little bit about tweed which leads us nicely into whenever yeasty boys are mentioned pants seem to come up adrian pua from up in um 
one of our good mates from up in Sydney. He wants to know what are the, what are the best pants to go with Imperial Stout, and what, why why would these people be asking questions about pants? Stu, I'm looking at you. you um, might feel I, this one. I was, I was going to redirect that one to Sam. <laughs> um, I've got yeah quite a large selection of pants. Um, I'm not the only brewer I've noticed, and not the only beer lover to have a, a wide selection of pants. Seems to be that um, you know people who are really into beer are really into other sorts of things as well, whether it's sort of music or um, you know heaps of people seem to be into sort of I know building their own computers and stuff like that. Um, I'm quite into so, pants. So just just to just to clarify for the listener, Sam, stop trying to get out of it because most brewers, most people have a collection of pants, but yours are to be fair different. Probably a bit different, yeah. Sort of um, yeah. often so we're talking bright, about... brightly coloured or uh, interesting patterns, uh, odd materials. Uh, it's an interesting question coming from Adrian because he's probably one of Australia's foremost beer and pants matches. So, um, so he's. I'm not sure if he's trying to tr- trick me up here, or he probably knows that I think uh, Imperial Stout's slightly overrated at the moment. So. Um, Maybe he's trying to sort of uh, get something there, but yeah, probably going to be some uh, skinny jeans, I imagine, for um, or probably in the summer for you guys. Now, be getting a bit warm for you guys. It'll be uh, those sort of skinny jeans shorts that people are wearing these days, the little turned-up cuffs. We did have from another another uh, home brewer uh, and also a uh, an expat Kiwi, uh, Luke Robertson, uh, whose uh, Twitter handle is Ale of a Time. Curious to know about Rex, and he's interested if, to know if it's stayed the same. Since have you have you always have you brewed it the same every time? Yep, uh, we've just brewed our third batch of Rex, and um, we uh, have brewed exactly the same recipe each time. The first batch uh, I thought was okay. The second batch I thought was a stunner, um, and I guess that was just brew day. You know, something not quite uh, right on brew day or. Uh, it was the same. It was even the same batch of malt. Maybe the malt was just um, a little bit older, a little bit better. Um, pretty difficult to tell, uh, but exactly the same recipe. Uh, and we've just the the batch that we've just brewed is uh, a new batch of malt. We've bought two tons each time from the UK because so we have to ship it in. It takes about oh, sort of about two months to get over here. So um, the the X Rex and the latest batch of Rex, which will probably be the next ones you guys get in Australia, uh, are both made from uh, some peated malt that actually has quite a significantly higher parts per million uh, phenols than the last ones. So you would expect it to have a little bit more of that uh, phenolic um, peaky kick. But the X Rex is actually quite subtle, and uh, some of the people who really love Rex Attitude that tried it at the um, beer festival that Sam mentioned there, Pacific Beer Expo, a couple of weeks ago, um, was surprised at how subtle it was. They thought it would be you know, a lot more peaty than Rex, but it's uh, it's actually, you know, the the 10% alcohol and that extra sweetness and everything sort of subtles, makes it a lot more subtle. So, um, And when can we when can we hope to see X-Rex over here in Australia? Uh, should be sending it probably in December or early January at the latest. We haven't actually bottled it here. The... Um, the, what we had, we had it on gravity at the uh, beer festival, and so it was just coming straight out of the, out of a little um, twenty-liter cask, and uh, that was flat basically. It was just very, very lightly carbonated. I actually um, just carbonate up slightly here at home, and um, so lower than what you'd normally get in a hand pump beer, and we haven't actually yeah, carbonated or bottled it here yet. 
So, and it's going to go into 330ml bottles rather than our big 750s because we thought 750s of that might be a bit too much for for some people. So, um, yeah, it'll asking be, a bit much, yeah. Yeah, it'll probably be around like um, February by the time you start seeing it on shelves and stuff like that. Well, it's something that's interested a lot of people over here and has uh, dominated some of the conversations when we speak about New Zealand is is the punters themselves. There seems to be um, not not a not a greater acceptance, but but perhaps a, a, a more per capita acceptance, if you like, of um, of craft beer and, and a willingness to try the non-mainstream sort of beers. What is that true, or is, is that just the perception from over here? If it is true, what what do you think is behind that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of I, I agree with it to a degree, but I guess there's a bit of caveat on that. Um, I mean, I think generally it's it's hard to tell. I guess when you're within the sphere yourself. Because, yeah, I mean, I look around where I go and drink and people I talk to, yeah, you know, you kind of feel like there's this huge upswell in terms of uh, moving towards craft beer or enjoying craft beer and trying something a bit different. Um, And I think that is to a degree, you know, definitely um, when you talk to more people, they're more aware of it. And it's, you know, getting a more prominent place um, in, you know, in supermarket stores and restaurants, et cetera. But, you know, I always kind of, Add to that that the craft beer sold in New Zealand only makes up about I think it's and I might be quoting this not quite accurately but I think it was the last number I heard but about two and a half percent of all beer sold. So you know when you kind of put it in that context, you know it is still pretty small, um, but at the same time it is growing. And you know when I, I guess also when I reflect on that when it's only two and a half percent, it just kind of says the opportunity for you know the whole craft beer scene to keep on growing, growing. And I think that's what is attracting, particularly I think in the last one or two years, a number of kind of new breweries and, and particularly new contract brewing operations because people have got the confidence to now to do it. That you know there's a lot of venues I think, and not only people that want to drink it, but also venues willing to take it. And I think that's kind of the key. Um, yeah, you can have the drinkers, but you also need to have the bar owners or the cafes and the restaurants um, being confident that if they stock and range craft beer, that you know they're actually going to sell it and it's going to attract people to to their venue. So um, yeah, yeah, I think we see all those things happening, but you know on the largest scale, it's still quite small. Um, I guess yeah. you know in terms of comparing that to visits to to Oz, um, certainly when we've been to Melbourne, I mean I've been quite impressed when. You know, we've popped into to any kind of bar or restaurant or, or cafe that, you know, there has been some craft beer um, somewhere in the fridge. So, you know, I think down in Melbourne, it seems to be doing quite well. I mean, I haven't travelled a lot around a lot of um, Australia in the last few years, uh, but, you know, we did go to Sydney last year and, you know, it's the, we went to the local tap house and, you know, you can't not help but be impressed with that place but I'm not too sure in Sydney in particular how outside that there is in terms of you know a similar scene that we saw growing in Melbourne yeah it's probably starting to grow a little bit off off the back of places like the tapas I think people are sort of seeing that there there perhaps is a market for it and and perhaps they're not turning you know 20 taps over to 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 craft beer and and you know imports and different things but they're at least you know perhaps taking you know a, a couple of their taps or you know Know a tenth of the uh, the fridge space or whatever, and put and, and putting in a few more. Um, now, there's also a bit of a theory that uh, you guys are fairly lucky over there in that there are more people who are uh, able to not have to use a car to commute. Therefore, if you're walking home, you know, walking from from work to home, you're perhaps more likely to pop into the one, two, or three locals 
uh, and have a quiet ale and then just sort of say, okay, well, oh, what have you got on this? You've got something a bit different here. Is that is that part of it? Well, I think I would have thought the opposite. Uh, I, I would think uh, probably the opposite for where Sam is in Auckland, but uh, for, for us here in Wellington, that's certainly the case. When Sam was speaking, I was thinking that same thing. It's uh, Wellington's got a really, it's got actually, um, the centre of Wellington's got the highest sort of density population in New Zealand and uh, people, you know, that we've also got by far the highest um, density of uh, great beer pubs for sure. And I think that's part of it. A lot of people here, you know, they tend to be the types of people who will have a beer uh, at work, you know, just after work and then go home on either walking or public transport. Wellington's public transport's pretty good as well. So a lot of people commute in on trains or uh, buses. And um, I think that's probably a good part of it. Whereas, you know, some of the biggest cities where you get like Melbourne, Auckland, Sydney and stuff like that, I've noticed a lot of people tend to probably less so drink at their work or around their work, they often sort of head back towards the area that they live in and then they have the little village sort of atmosphere where, you know, there'll be a few pubs and restaurants and stuff like that. We don't really have that so much in Wellington. So um, it's all based around the central city. So we've got, you know, probably about a sort of eight to ten, you know, really good beer pubs uh, in the central city, which is pretty pretty awesome for a city of 200-odd thousand, 300,000. Uh, mm. The other thing I was thinking uh, when Sam was speaking that's something I've noticed in Australia over the last couple of years is that your, your tap beers are fantastic. Your brewers are making some great tap beers, but some of the bottled beer really doesn't quite live up to, to that to that mark. And uh, New Zealand was like that as well probably four or five years ago, and, and it's still not perfect, but um, our bottled beer has improved out of sight, the packaging in the last you know four or five years. And that's the entry level for a lot of cafes and pubs and stuff. And, and the place where people get to know a little bit about craft beer, buying at their bottle store or supermarket is buying a bottle. It's not from buying a keg. You know, yeah. someone's not going to buy, spend $300, $400 on a keg of, you know, heavily hopped IPA when they can go and spend 7 $8 at the supermarket for a bottle of it. And... Um, what what do you mean that the, the what what do you see as the problems there, Stu? Is it the labels or is it the quality, the quality of what's, of what's in, the in the bottle? Yeah, the labels are fine, you know. Um, but it's yeah, I've noticed, uh, you know, I've I've tasted a lot of really good beers on tap in Australia, and then the same beer in bottle just hasn't been up to the mark. And um, and it, it, it it's interesting you say that because when we did talk about contract brewing uh, with uh, Cam from Mountain Goat. That was something that uh, he talked about, and you know they get most of their beer brewed at their on-site brewery, but they also get uh, their steam ale um, contract brewed for them. And he commented that you know the quality of the bottled beer is much better because a bigger contract brewery has is, is much better set up to have all of that quality control that maybe some of the small brewers, um, you know, who are hand bottling or you know some of the other problem, uh, some of the other. Um, issues that can come into to, to bottling yeah. don't have yeah yeah that's exactly right i think you know it's really difficult to have a small brewery and you know be trying to pump out all your beer and also you know having all those other you know the staff issues and the you know supply issues and everything that you've got running a business like that and um you know mountain goats obviously not a small brewery they're, they're growing just set up a new brew house i noticed so um they've obviously got a lot on their plate without having to try and sort of worry about you know something else and you know the quality control around hand bottling is pretty difficult. I noticed they were doing um, their 650ml beers at the brewery, I think, when I was over there last year. 
And part of the idea behind that, they said, was that they just sell out so fast and they're drunk so fast, those beers. And they're all quite big beers as well. So there's a little bit better stability in the bottle. And and that was one thing I did mm-hmm. notice, actually. The bigger sort of um, beers over in Australia in the bottle were really good. I had some had some pretty nice yeah. sort of like, you know, imperial stouts and strong, strong ales over there. But the, it's that four or five percent, you know, sort of, you know, five percent pale ales and stuff like that that are really difficult to um you know to get the stability in and you've got to have you know great bottling system and um, be really careful about the way you're doing things and uh but but even do you think that new zealand being a much smaller country geographically um makes it a little bit easier and the, the climate is a little bit milder than you know australia which is very hot and most of the transport is done in um unrefrigerated transports i mean it, that's been something that has worried me for a while that you know brewers in Melbourne are eyeing off Queensland markets um, for their bottled beers that probably really need to be very well looked after and drunk fresh um, and that's never going to happen if they're being sent up to somewhere like my hometown in Brisbane. Yeah it's a long way for, for beer to go but we're shipping beer you know regularly um, not quite that far but almost as far from Invercargill to Auckland and uh, we're fine and that's not um, not refrigerated obviously it doesn't get quite as hot here um, but it gets you know it gets pretty warm in Auckland but most beer will be going from truck to you know into a cool room probably uh, might go into shelf we're also doing fairly small volumes compared to a lot of places um, but everyone's I guess trying to keep that sort of um, you know freshness up for a lot of for a lot of our beers we're actually finding the opposite problem that you know, I'd like to store them for a little bit longer before we send them out for sale. Uh, but, you know, you also don't want to disappoint your customers, um, especially big ones, you know, um, by saying the beer's out of stock. So we're sort of pushing beer out probably a little bit quicker than we would like to. Um, not before it's ready, but uh, probably before it's, you know, as we would want it. I think our beer's probably best, most of them, because they're quite strong beers, you know, 6 and 7%. Well, our regular beers are probably best around the sort of three-month mark or something like that, and occasionally we're sort of sending them out there sort of a month from brew day. So um, I think it's mostly in the, in the technical packaging side. I know with Invercargill, having talked to Steve a lot about, you know, how he's he's constantly, Steve Nelly at Invercargill, trying to improve his processes. You know, he's never happy with where they're at. Um, he's making great beer, you know, won a lot of awards for his beers but he's always thinking about, you know, where, what's not quite right in his brewery. And one of the things he did a few years ago was he invested quite a lot of money into um, a, a very good uh, modern Mahine bottling plant. And he's, his, his packaging is really just so much better since he's, he's done that than uh, what he's doing, you know, what he was doing with hand bottling or um, before, yeah. And just to finish up, before we let you guys go and, uh, and get back to making some of that beer that we're uh, looking, so looking forward to, where to now? For Yeasty Boys, where where from here? What does the future hold? Well, I guess you know, kind of we talked about at the start where we where Stu put uh, business plans and speech market. Really, really hasn't changed a, a lot from there. Really, we're kind of we still make it up a little bit as we we go along, and I, that's why I guess we probably enjoy it so much and have so much fun that there's not too much planning ahead. I mean, there is a little bit, but we don't try and overdo it because um, you know we like to be kind of taken by the moment. So, you know, we kind of find our things, uh, find ourselves doing things, you know, we didn't, wouldn't have expected to six months ago. Um, you know, certainly in the last 12 months, you know, things have kind of stepped up a, a gear, maybe two or three gears. Um, you know, obviously we've started st- sending beer to, to Oz, which is going really well. Um, we've just had our first shipment 
arrive in the states, and we have, they've already asked for some some more beer, some wrecks actually, and we're currently looking to start shipping some beer to to Europe. So you know, I guess that kind of adds some new challenges, but also you know, some more possibilities for us as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, we want to kind of also do the things we love, which is you know, coming up with the seasonal beers and the new beers, and you know, trying something a bit different. So you know, it's kind of trying to get a bit of a mix of you know growing the business and, and pushing that along, but also not losing the side of the bit that we, we really love. Yeah, we both, Sam and I both, a lot of people don't realise that, and I think quite a lot of people are shocked that we both have day jobs. And uh, we both, you know, we both work fairly hard in our day jobs as well. So, um, and have, uh, you know, I don't know about Sam, but I really enjoy mine as well. And it's a it's a nice difference from what I do uh, with the beer stuff. So um, it's neither of us are in a big hurry to leave them at the moment we're kind of enjoying what we're doing it's great to see steve nelly's brewery grow you know uh with us as we've grown he's doing some other contract brewing with uh the musselin the famous musselin brew pub uh down in the south island as well and a few other sort of smaller clients we were talking to him uh just last week because he's looking at moving to a new brewery and uh you know we're we're really excited about that as well it's you know it opens up a few more possibilities He's got Central Otago on his doorstep, so uh, there's the the possibility of um, some barrel-aged beers coming out and uh, some of the nice... Um, we've actually got some Rex Attitude, just a small amount um, maturing in a Chardonnay, uh, French oak at the moment, which is just for fun, just to see mm. kind of see what happens. So there's opportunity there for, um, you know, a pops perhaps a little barrel room at his new site. Definitely the chance to start ageing a few beers, so we're looking at getting some tanks uh, so we can age some beers and hopefully in a year or so you might start to see some uh, some beers that are sort of really suited for sitting in a tank for um, six months to a year, uh, if, if Sam, the accountant, will allow me to do that. And uh, and then also um, there's also uh, some other possibilities around perhaps um, some product uh, outside of the beer landscape as well, which maybe people will probably have a bit of an idea what we might be interested in from the beers we make, but um, yeah, we'll see how that all goes in the near future. Well, it certainly sounds like you boys are, uh, are living the dream rather than just dreaming it. So Sam and Stu, thank you very much for joining us today on Radio Brews News. Great, thank a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Thanks.